0: Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke who uh, well, you actually may have heard of this fellow before. Very, very famous ancient Greek philosopher. It's not, uh, it's not Socrates, not Aristotle, not Plato. No, no, it is in fact Diogenes. Diogenes the Cynic, as he's known, Diogenes of Sinope. Um, there are a lot of obviously very famous stories about this fella. All of most, <laughs> almost all of which are uh, just utterly ridiculous. Uh, And, uh, you know, even if some of them are a bit apocryphal, uh, they're now irreversibly associated with this fella. And uh, as I say, you might have heard of some of them living in a great big ceramic jar, I think often misreported as a barrel. I think it was, in fact, actually a jar. Wandering about with a lantern in broad daylight. And, of course, the famous encounter that he's thought to have had with Alexander the Great. Angus Bingham suggested Diogenes as a topic for the podcast, and I'll tell you what, he's spot-bloody on. We've had a little too much serious and interesting history, really, so it's uh, it's time to get back to the podcast's roots here and instead have an episode on uh, on something absurd and entertaining, and... uh Diogenes, I'll tell you what, he was definitely both of those things. He was definitely both absurd and entertaining, uh, even if, you know, once you get past how much of a wacko he seemed to be, even if he lived his life according to uh, to very strict philosophical principles, actually. He was one of the founders of cynicism. He was, uh, he was one of the original cynics. Although uh, that word means something slightly different in a you know, in a philosophical context, not what it means in uh, in common parlance today. Anyway, we'll get across all of that cynicism and all the rest of it. In addition to uh, you know the jar and the lantern, lantern and, the, and, and 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 you know and the pissing in public. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Diogenes was a dirty boy. Make no mistake about it. He was having a cheeky slash in public. You know that was that's that's just the start of it. He was. Um he was also a real funny bugger. He really was. He was constantly ripping out one-liners and roasting people. In fact, most of this episode is just going to be some, uh, you know, some of his best material from uh, from throughout his life. So, in any case, strap yourselves in for a whirlwind tour of the life of Diogenes, the cynic, one of the funniest and weirdest blokes uh, to emerge from ancient Greece, which is uh, which is really saying something. So. We're going all the way back. You're going all the way back to the late 5th century BCE. So remember BCE, before the Common Era, we're counting years down rather than up as we move forward through time. He was born in either 412 or 404 BCE, about 2,400 years ago, in Sinope, which is, uh, I might be saying that wrong, I mean, no one's surprised by that, uh, which is a coastal town on the Black Sea in modern-day Turkey. But back then, this, uh, this town was a colony of Ionia, one of the four major Greek tribes from the ancient period and not, unfortunately, the home of, you know, the, the Shogun monks or the Navori Brotherhood, nothing like that. That's a That's a slightly different timeline, I'm afraid. Anyway... We don't know too much about Dogeny's his early life at all. Uh, we can't even nail down the year of his birth, obviously. So uh, you know, we don't know too much about what he was uh, getting up to as a kid or anything. But we do know that his old man Hecasius, Hecceus, H I C S I A S, Hecceus. I don't know how to, how to I don't know how to say it. Should have practiced that one. Should have looked that one up. Anyway, this bloke he was a banker. And at some point during his uh, his upbringing, Diogenes actually joined the family business and worked as a banker alongside his dad. And it was after this, it was after uh, Diogenes had joined in the family business, that Ocasius became embroiled in a counterfeiting and a, and a currency debasing scandal, right? So he was either making fake coins or making coins that weren't worth what their face value said they were. Uh, again, details are a little sketchy, but this almost certainly happened, uh, even if the, you know the details are pretty thin on the ground. Um, we're actually not even sure if Diogenes was directly involved. The long and the short of it was that Ocasius faced exile for me- messing around with currency because he was uh, he was de- you know he definitely did it. And for whatever reason Diogenes he decided to go along with his dad, either because he was also forced into exile because he was implicated in the crime, or he just chose to go with Ocases of his own volition. Whatever the reason, Diogenes he ended up over on the southern end of the Balkan peninsula, basically, I mean, what you'd think of today as, as modern-day Greece, and he starts cutting about there. Now, before we get stuck into the story properly, it's important to remember that as I said, all of this took place over you know, almost Two and a half Thousand years ago And uh So the historical truth Of all of of these Little anecdotes I'm going to tell you About this bloke They might not be 100% accurate You know They might have Sort of been uh, Fiddled with Embellished Exaggerated a little bit Over the years But uh All of these stories keep cropping up in all of the sources that you read about dogenies. Most of them actually have a little disclaimer like the one I'm giving you right now. So, you know, there's probably at least a little grain of truth in there somewhere. And even if there's not, well, it's just a bloody good story, isn't it? There's a whole lot of stuff in here that's just very, very entertaining. So anyway, let's get to it here. The story goes that once he arrived in Greece, he headed to Delphi, uh, which was an incredibly important site in ancient Greece uh, because there... It was the the high priestess or the Pythia who would answer questions and make prophecies in the temple of Apollo. You've probably heard of the Pythia, better known as the Oracle at Delphi. Um, although even you know today, even you know the, the, the fact you know we know a lot about. Well, uh, we know the uh, the Oracle existed, and we know she was very important. You know throughout the throughout the years there, but we still don't know. We're not hundred percent sure on what exactly went on in the temple and how the Pythia would answer questions or make predictions. And the reason as to why we don't know is really interesting too. All of the contemporary accounts of the oracle, right? So all of the bits of information that we have from people who are writing at the time about the oracle, about the Pythia, they actually left out all the small, boring details of what a visit to the Pythia involved because they all assumed that it was common knowledge like everyone back then knew what it involved so they didn't bother describing it it's like these days if you wrote like a journal entry or whatever you wouldn't spend too much time explaining something like i don't know something menial you know something like tying your shoes for example you wouldn't you wouldn't write a, a long description about tying your shoelaces so just think think about this in two and a half thousand years people might think that you know in the 21st century we bloody tied shoes to the bottom of our feet like a like very very small uh, pairs of stilts uh, So anyway, whatever the specific details may or may not have been, uh, what's certain is that the people would make uh, long and arduous journeys to Delphi, and it's there that they would visit the Pythia in the Temple of Apollo. Usually there'd be a huge queue, but just like with boarding an airplane these days, you could pay to skip to the front of it. And once you're in, you could have a question answered, or you'd receive a prophecy from the Pythia, who by most accounts was, you know, she'd just get high as a kite as part of this whole process, and she'd, you know, sort of babble away, or she'd be in these sort of trance states or, you know, hallucinating whatever else, and she'd, uh, she'd let loose with a fly of, uh, you know, a long fly of sort of uh, nonsense or jibber-jabber or whatever else there like that. Um, it was uh, Cicero, a Roman philosopher, who came along a couple of centuries after Diogenes. He wrote that the Greeks would actually never do anything important without first consulting the oracle. So whether that was, you know, sending off an expedition or starting a new colony or, of course, you know, going off to war, you had to check in with Pythia beforehand. Seems like she was basically the, you know, the middle management of a- ancient Greece, I reckon. Anyway, um, our boy Diogenes, he, he goes along to Delphi and uh, he has a chat with, the, with the Pythia, who, who tells him that he should deface the currency, and, I mean, that's the exact opposite of a a prophecy. I hope he didn't bloody pay for the executive upgrade there, you know, skipping the queue, because he's just got it. He's got – someone – you know. He's just been told something that has already happened—the the exact literal opposite of a prophecy. Those who have, of course, purchased the highly exclusive limited edition half our history notebook, which is definitely selling very well indeed. Thank you. No, I'm not I'm not worried about the hundreds of them that are rotting away in a box in my cupboard. Not at all. Um, they'll know that it was August uh, Wilhelm Schlegel who said that the historian is a prophet facing backwards, and that seemed to be the uh, <laughs> being the, the treatment that old mate he has got there. Poor bugger. Anyway, he didn't mind. He actually didn't mind. He wasn't too unhappy with his prophecy because he took the oracle's words as a metaphor to mean that he should deface political currency rather than you know, actual literal coins, and he very much liked the sound of that, very much liked the sound of that indeed. Diogenes, he decided at that point to devote himself to seeking truth and virtue by basically sticking it to the man. He decided to challenge social norms and, and you know, customary behaviour, to reject manners and etiquette and customs and, and even basic human comforts, and to do this, Diogenes headed... To Athens, of course, one of the biggest and most important cities on earth at the time, especially in this part of the world, in the ancient Greek world, and there he sought out a bloke named Antisthenes, who had been tra- who's kind of been tragically overlooked by much of history, perhaps because he he wasn't you know he wasn't as bloody weird as Diogenes here. Um, but Antisthenes, it was he was the actual original cynic. This fella, he was he was thirty or forty years older than Diogenes, and he would actually been a student of Socrates himself. And Socrates had taught him that virtue, not pleasure, was the point of existence. And Antisthenes had taken this to heart. He lived in a, an, a, as an ascetic for most of his life. And uh, this, it really does make him the very first cynic, although he never used this term or explored, you know, the, the philosophy in that sense. Probably the best way to put it is that Antisthenes, uh, this bloke, he laid the foundations for what cynicism would later become and uh, would have done a better job, you know of being remembered to history if he'd done weird stuff like, you know, live in a jar and, and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, if he'd wanted history to remember him, he, he should have played it like that instead. Anyway, he, he was well known enough at the time for Diogenes to want to become his student. And so uh, once Diogenes got to Athens, he tracked down this bloke Antisthenes. Now, some sources suggest that they actually may have never met, but then plenty of others say that they did, uh, although the meeting was not apparently a happy one, because Antisthenes had no desire whatsoever to take Diogenes on as a pupil, but Diogenes wouldn't leave him alone, bloody pestering him day and night, give me some bloody homework, mate, go on please, I want to be, I want to be your pupil. Apparently Antisthenes realised that ignoring this weirdo wasn't going to be enough, and so at one point actually beat him off with a staff. Uh, that was an actual quote from a history book, beat him off with a staff. Uh, you'd think that sort of thing it'd encourage some people. There are, you know, there are those who are into that sort of thing, aren't there? It, you know, it takes all sorts. But uh, Diogenes, who, who loved a quick comeback, he told Antisthenes to strike, for you will find no wood hard enough to keep me away from you so long as I think you've something to say. So, I mean, passing over from the undertone of, you know, or the, the overtone, I guess, of, 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 of what these two blokes are saying to each other here, Diogenes, he persisted and became a student of Antisthenes again after, you know, after sticking around long enough to annoy the bugger into, uh, in, into actually, you know, saying yes. But as you'll discover, he took his asceticism and his rejection of society to much more extreme levels than his teacher. And I suppose this is a good spot here to pause, to pause quickly and talk about cynicism in a philosophical sense because uh, the rest of Diogenes' story here is going to showcase what uh, what, what cynicism in that sense uh, was all about. According to cynicism, the meaning of life is to seek virtue and live in accordance with nature. Now, not nature in the sort of trees and animals sense, you know, not with deer hopping around and squirrels on your shoulder, more in uh, the, you know, what comes naturally to you sense. so, So human nature type sense. Cynicism teaches that you can achieve happiness by living a simple, And, uh, you know, very basic life, rejecting conventional thinking and social norms. And uh, in practice, as well as in theory, I should say, because cynics also rejected money, power, celebrity, possessions, and of course, as I said before, basic human comforts. According to a cynic, again, in the philosophical sense, the most important attributes to have in life are things like self-sufficiency, asceticism, and uh, this is where Diogenes was a real pro, as you'll see. Shamelessness, right? So a complete rejection of manners, etiquette, uh, societal norms, customs, all that sort of thing. There, obviously, today, cynicism means something else entirely. It usually refers to people who are you know jaded or skeptical or distrustful or or perhaps you know those who don't have faith in other humans. So make sure don't don't make the mistake of uh, of, of conflating philosophical cynicism with what is it, with what it is uh, it's come to mean today. When we're talking about Diogenes, I very much mean uh, you know not 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 referring to any of the any of the jaded or disillusioned cynicism of the 21st century. Very, very different uh, very different thing indeed. Anyway, let's get to some weird stories about this weird bloke. Because uh, whether it was uh, as a student of, of Antisthenes or of his own accord, Diogenes utterly gave himself over to the principles of this new philosophical school of thought cynicism. He spurned all earthly pleasures. He rejected wealth and possessions and all the rest of it. And he saw society as a construct that prevented people from living truly virtuous lives. Diogenes contended that people were trapped in an artificial world that they happily accepted as a reality. And obviously, this ties into the teachings of Socrates and uh, and Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, uh, and and that this accepted reality was, uh, you know, done by conforming to social convention and established norms. He believed that things like manners and etiquette were just lies that people used to hide their true selves. And so he lived his life completely honestly and according to nature. Now, that sounds well and good, uh, but, uh, you know, You might think again when I tell you what uh, that actually involved on a real world level, and uh, uh, you know, I-, I will also reassure you by saying that, that is sort of more or less the last of the high-minded philosophical nonsense we're going to talk. We're going to talk about, yeah, we're we're going to get into you know defecating in public and living in jars very very soon here. So uh, don't don't worry, there won't be too much more high high-minded rigorous nonsense here. Now, you've probably heard the story about Dogenys living in in a jar or maybe a barrel. It, it probably wasn't a barrel, uh, rather an enormous ceramic jar that was made initially to hold wine. But that isn't in fact how he lived. He did live in uh, in this enormous big jar that was sort of upended on its side, right? Uh, it was <laughs> he didn't you know get in and out of it like Oscar the Grouch. He wasn't uh, popping out the top of it. It was it was it was laid on its side, and he lived in that. And this enormous jar it was located in the middle of the Athenian marketplace. Obviously a very important place in the uh, you know in 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 the society of Athens, and that's where he lived. That's where he lived. He set himself up right in the middle of the marketplace to make it very clear to everyone that he was practicing what he preached and that he was living his life as he said you should. He had no money, he lived entirely off the charity of others, and uh, his only possession was a small wooden bowl that he used to eat and drink. Now, if that doesn't convince you strongly enough that he was so serious about living his life according to his principles, you know, the possessions and social norms prevented you from living a virtuous life, check out this story. About his uh, his little wooden bowl here, about this little wooden bowl that Dodgini's had. So Dodgini's one day he's hanging out in his jar, as you do. He's chasing that life of perfect virtue. He's just his jar and his bowl. He's loving life. That's all he's got, right? Anyway, he looks around and he sees this little kid, little small boy, who is having a bit of a drink of water. But here's the thing: the kid isn't using a cup or a bowl or anything like that. He's just using his cupped hands to have this little drink of water. And so now, listen, you can call Diogenes whatever you want. You can call him a weirdo, a wacko, all all the rest of it. But I'll tell you one thing, he wasn't. He wasn't a hypocrite. He definitely wasn't a hypocrite. Because after seeing this kid drink out of his hands rather than using a cup, Diogenes picked up his little wooden bowl and he destroyed it. He smashed it to bits because he realised that he didn't need it in order to live. You can just drink out of your hands. You don't need this bowl. And so as he's smashing up this bowl, out came another classic Dodge in his one-liner. He says, Fool that I am to have been carrying around superfluous baggage all this time. That's how devoted he was to living a life of pure, unadulterated cynicism. He didn't even want this little bowl when he realized that it wasn't absolutely, strictly necessary for him to have to live his life. And this is just the start. Of his antics, most of which end with him, you know, delivering a, a punchy one-liner, which which does make you wonder just how historically accurate all these stories are, unless this guy really was, you know, the, the headline act at the at the Athens International Comedy Festival. Um, Diogenes—he was famous for wandering about during the day, in broad daylight, with a lantern, and he'd go around and he'd peer at people as though he could hardly see. He'd cut about the marketplace, holding up this lantern to people's faces, looking as though he was determined to find something. And obviously, people looking—what this bloody, what's this bloody weirdo doing? Why is he going around peering at everyone with a lantern? And so, when he was stopped and questioned about it, when people say, "Mate, hang on a second, what are you doing with that? What are you looking for? Why are you going around with this lantern, looking at everyone?" And obviously, you know, he would then unload the punchline to this whole setup. He's going around for hours looking at people just so people asking what he's doing, because then his reply would be, I'm just looking for an honest man. You can see how this bloke, he was so bloody gung-ho about cynicism, he didn't mind forcing his ideas into the public consciousness. He's going around bloody shaming people for not being as uh, you know, <laughs> as woke to cynicism as he was back then. He's going around making a bloody fool of himself just to make people think about things. And he had very little respect for other famous philosophers that didn't agree with his principles, most famously, of course, Plato. Today we consider Plato as, uh, as, the, as the quote-unquote heir to Socrates. Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, etc., um, but I can, I can safely say that Diogenes did not agree with this assessment, and he didn't mind ridiculing Plato wherever and whenever he could, because, of course, he thought that it was Antisthenes who was the, the rightful heir of Socrates as, as one of his students, which I guess would make Diogenes then Aristotle, and I guess, uh, you know, Aristotle, who famously tutored Alexander the Great. Well, Diogenes also did a bit, bit of tutoring of Alexander the Great, as, as we'll talk, well, tutoring probably a stretch, but we'll get to that story when, uh, you know, of course, later in the podcast here. Anyway, the uh, he didn't like plato didn't think that you know thought he was up on his high horse there at his academy whatever else there and uh, and as a result whenever he had the opportunity to to, uh, to take plato down a peg or two he definitely uh, he definitely took advantage of it. there are very many you know, lots of famous examples of his uh, of, of him uh, taking the piss out of plato but the most famous example of course was when plato gave the uh, the tongue in cheek description of humans as being uh, featherless bipeds. Now, the people at Plato's Academy thought this was a a bloody, a ripper line. They thought it was absolutely bloody brilliant, they did. But obviously, Diogenes, he wasn't going to let him get away with it. So after hearing about this, uh, this thing that Plato had said, Diogenes brazenly marched into Plato's Academy, went up to Plato himself and said to him, "'Behold, I've brought you a man,' and then brandished an unplucked chicken at him." And I mean, the bloke—he just did not give a toss about anything. He's, he, he's making a mockery of one of the most famous philosophers uh, you know, of the time. Uh, incidentally, by the way, Plato's Academy then had to update the definition of what a human was to add feather. Oh, so it, it, it then became featherless bipeds with broad, flat nails. So I quite like that he—you know—he did at least make them uh, make them have a, another look at that. Anyway, beyond everything. Diogenes, he definitely practiced what he preached. There's no doubt about that. He became a living example of what his philosophy was all about, that happiness and virtue could only come through rejecting society and its norms. And uh, when it comes to norms, well, there weren't many norms that uh, that he was not prepared to break here. For example, when someone saw how Diogenes lived his life and called him a dog, Diogenes responded by lifting his leg and pissing on the bloke. I mean, Talk about proving a bloody point. Chill out there, Diogenes. What the bloody hell is that all about? I mean, by all accounts, he was utterly shameless when it came to his bodily functions. He'd he'd bloody whip it out and take a leak anywhere and everywhere. And it wasn't limited to number ones either. There are stories of him busting grumpies in the theatre, in the marketplace, wherever it took his fancy, really. He'd just strangle a brown snake wherever and whenever the urge took him. His argument was an interesting one. He contended that anything that is not shameful in private should also not be shameful in public. And, you know, it's actually, on, on one level, it's kind of tough to argue against that. And it does kind of prove that social norms are obviously entirely constructed. But still, I mean, mate, no one wants to watch you liquidate your assets in public, really. Come on, just go and bloody find a, a you know, find a bloody portaloo or something, Dogenes. Mate, please, come on, don't make us watch that. And... Uh, it wasn't just to- it wasn't just toilet stuff either. Diogenes took it to another level entirely, as he was also quite happy to just crank down in the middle of the Athenian marketplace, in clear view of everyone. Imagine that. Well, actually, no. Don't, don't. Rather, don't do that. Don't imagine that. Some weird bloke living in a jar, knocking one out in broad daylight as you're bloody buying your groceries for the week. No thanks, Diogenes, mate. What are you bloody doing? although uh his his habit of jack and the beanstalk in uh, in public it did lead uh, once again to a classic dodge in his one liner which i really this is my this is probably my favorite quote of him of all time uh he said he says in you know in reference to his uh in reference to his 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 habit there he says if only it were as easy to banish hunger by rubbing my belly <laughs> which i really do think is just a very uh, a very you know it is a very it's a very good line anyway I mentioned before how uh, someone called him a dog, and uh, if we pass over, you know, Dojani's response to uh, to that uh, supposed insult for just one second, we actually talk about how he actually felt to be called a dog. he seemed to have really had a thing for dogs. He actually considered it to be a bit of a compliment when people called him dog-like. Uh, he considered them inherently virtuous animals, and he actually sought to imitate them, you know, <laughs> in more ways than one, I suppose. Um, uh, once someone asked him why he didn't consider it insulting to be called a dog, and he said, I fawn on those who give me anything, I yelp at those who refuse, and I set my teeth in rascals. He did really believe that dogs were uh, inherently virtuous, you know, they'll eat anything, they'll sleep anywhere, they know friends from foes by instinct and uh, most importantly, you know, they'll they'll just piss and shit everywhere. So I mean that did really seem to be a, a big part of Dodge and his philosophical platform or whatever reason, the you know, the the, the relieving yourself in public at, at the drop of a hat, it did really seem to to factor into his, his sort of worldview quite profoundly there. And despite all this, however, apparently people in Athens really loved him. They just bloody loved the bloke, which I just do not understand. The, you know The council workers are going around taking care of his mess, putting up great big bloody clean up after your philosopher signs, stuff like that. But uh, the people are all about him, so much so that there's this story about when uh, when some young kid smashed up his jar. People actually got together to get him a new one and uh, and gave the boy a, a a hiding for good measure, you know, just to show how much uh, how much uh, Diogenes meant to meant to the city there. So quite quite astonishing that he managed to ingratiate himself with the people of Athens like that, considering his habits. And uh, anyway, he lived in Athens for many, many years, but he actually saw out the end of his life in Corinth, a nearby city. Uh, how he got there isn't certain. There's one story that tells that he was uh, sailing to the Isle of uh, Aegina when he was captured by pirates and then sold as a slave. Uh, he ended up being bought by a Corinthian bloke named Xeniades. And of course, there's a story there as well, obviously. <laughs> While being sold, he was asked what his talents were, and he said his only talent was governing men. And, uh, you know, not really what people are looking for at the slave markets, I'd guess. But then he pointed out Zeniadas and he said, ''Sell me to that man, for he wants a master.'' I mean the bloody lip on this bloke, unbelievable. But the end result was that Zeniades actually bought Diogenes and uh, and and uh, employed him as a as a tutor. He employed the, the the philosopher as a tutor for his kids. Again, maybe none of this actually happened, but it's more or less certain that Diogenes, for whatever reason, ended up in Corinth towards the end of his life. He may have actually ended up back in the in the in the trusty wine jar there too. We're not one hundred percent sure about that, but of course. The most famous event to emerge from Diogenes' time in Corinth was his meeting with Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great, one of the most powerful and successful conquerors the world has ever seen. Wealthy beyond measure, famous beyond comprehension, all the rest of it. How might Diogenes, our devoted cynic, react to meeting such a man? The meeting between these two has become one of the most famous and closely examined anecdotes in history. Of course, today we have no way of of knowing just how much of it is truth or fiction, how much of it has been exaggerated in the retellings, or indeed even if it happened in the first place. But the meeting between one of history's most famous and powerful people and a bloke who, well, you know, a bloke who today is, is known for... Manhandling the ham candle, it uh, it went about as well as you might expect. If you haven't heard the story already, here's how Plutarch, the famed biographer, told the story uh, centuries later. This is the wo- these are the words of Plutarch here. <clears throat> Thereupon, many statesmen and philosophers came to Alexander with their congratulations, and he expected that Diogenes of Sinope, also who was tarrying in Corinth, would do likewise. But since that philosopher took not the slightest notice of Alexander and continued to enjoy his leisure in the suburb Croneion, Alexander went in person to see him, and he found him lying in the sun. Diogenes raised himself up a little when he saw so many people coming towards him and fixed his eyes upon Alexander. And when that monarch addressed him with greetings and asked if he wanted anything, yes, said Diogenes, stand a little out of my son. It is said that Alexander was so struck by this and admired so much the haughtiness and the grandeur of the man who had nothing but scorn for him that he said to his followers who were laughing and jesting about the philosopher as they went away, But truly, if I were not Alexander, I wish I were Diogenes. And Diogenes replied, If I wasn't Diogenes, I would be wishing to be Diogenes too. Dogenes lived the rest of his life in Corinth with or without a wine jar until his death in 323 BCE, and just as so many details of his life are both spectacular and uncertain, so too are the details of his death. There are many different accounts of how he died. Uh, one story goes that he died of food poisoning after eating some raw octopus or a raw ox's foot. Now, I don't really know how those two items could ever be confused, or... Maybe he just ate both at the same time and we don't know which one actually killed him. Um, Another story uh, attempts to prove that history has a real sense of humour because it goes that Diogenes died after being bitten by a dog when the wound became infected. I mean, not very fair, is it? I mean, you know, you spend your life loving and imitating dogs, even going so far as to lift your leg and piss on someone in the grand tradition of dogs everywhere. And that's how they, you know, that's how they bloody repay you. Um, but perhaps the funniest story about the death of Diogenes, however, is the one that says he somehow managed to hold his breath to death. I mean, I don't even know if that's possible. You know, Diogenes was, I guess Diogenes was a pretty determined bloke and, and it seems like the kind of guy who would do it just to prove you wrong about something. But look, no matter how he died, the people in Corinth, they loved him just as much as they'd done in Athens. I mean, how, how does that work? What, what, what was it with this bloke? Anyway, he was buried by the city gate in a place of honour, and the Corinthians marked his resting place with a statue of a dog, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, Although this was in contravention of Diogenes' wishes, as he'd left specific instructions as to what they should do with his body after he died. He said he wished for his body to be, quite simply, thrown over the city walls for the wild dogs to feast upon. And when people said this was no way to dispose of a corpse and, you know, wouldn't Dogenes mind that his body was going to be torn to bits, he replied by saying, not at all, as long as you provide me with a stick to chase the creatures away. And obviously people pointed out how ridiculous this was as well. And Dogenes used the opportunity to snap off another one-liner and once again spruik his philosophy, ridiculing people's fixation on the conventional and proper way to deal with dead bodies, societal norms and all the rest of it. He was asked how he could possibly use a stick to fight off the dogs while dead, as, as, as he'd be completely unaware of them. And he replied, If I lack awareness, then why should I care what happens to me when I'm dead? But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Diogenes the cynic. I'll tell you what the bloke's done a ride right for himself. He really has done a ride right for himself. He's become famous by basically just like exercising bodily functions in public. And uh, you know he had a bit of an advantage. Two and a half thousand years ago, it was a lot easier to become famous. But I mean, we're still saying his name now in the 21st century. So he was the fir- he was the first to get there. So full credit to him. Well, good on good on good on you, Dogenes. I guess all the philosophical nonsense as well. But you know, mainly for becoming you know famous for living in a jar and, and and pissing in public i think i think he's done i think he's done a ride for himself there anyway thank you again to angus bingham who sent in uh, the the topic suggestion gonna do all the boring housekeeping stuff here and now if you want to send in a topic suggestion of your own halfhousehistory.net you can find the contact form there ways to subscribe to the show old episodes and of course links to subscribe on antune a- antune on antune and idroid on iTunes and Android and uh, Spotify. If you want to uh, do me a favor and leave a review on iTunes, that'd be uh, that'll be very much appreciated. Uh, you can go to halfhousestory.bigcartel.com. I looked it up. That is the correct address. Uh, and there you can buy t-shirts, magnets, uh, badges, uh, notebooks, the lot, of course, bulk discount if you buy all things together. And free shipping on all orders. Don't forget about that. Um, and of course, if you want, as I say, if you want to give me money and receive even less things in the post for that, you can go to patreon.com slash half us history and join at a range of tiers that offer different benefits. You can gain early access to episodes, you can get uh, uncut episodes, show notes, all that sort of stuff. And of course, at the premium executive highest level uh, subscription tier, you can become an executive producer of half fast History with business cards to match. And now in March, I'm very proud to welcome three new executive producers to the half fast History family. Angus Bingham, who actually was also, you know, same Angus Bingham who was sent in this topic suggestion. Cormac Dillon and Adam Caton, all now freshly suited and booted executive producers and they've got the business cards to prove it. If you want to join half Our History's p- uh, pre- uh, Patreon, you can, of course, do that. Again, patreon.com slash History. Anyway, that's enough of that boring nonsense for this week. Thank you so much for listening to another episode uh, of this stupid podcast. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell everyone, my friends. We've got to get those numbers up. Rookie numbers in this business. Um, but thanks for hanging out with me. We'll see you again next week for more Half-House History. Until then, leaving you, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. A Reddit historian uh, putting up a good one about ancient Greece. <clears throat> ancient Greek men thought that the ideal male body possessed a small penis. Do we have any idea what ancient Greek women thought?